Welcome to Backspin. Thanks to Inside Golf. I'm Steve Anderson here with Larry Canning to talk golf once again. How are you, Larry? G'day, Steve. Hello, listeners. I know you're doing your own personal wrap-up of the US Open over there. We'll talk about that some more in a moment, but plenty coming up in the in the show today. As I said, we'll talk US Open. We're going to talk to one of the greats of Australian golf, probably a bloke whose name... Doesn't get the recognition it deserves in 2018. What do you think? Yeah, David Graham. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You're probably right, Steve. Yeah, there was a there was a point in time where he wasn't inducted into the World uh, Golf Hall of Fame, and uh, a lot of conjecture about the fact that he was one of the most underrated, possibly underrated players the world's ever seen in terms of that because he won two majors. Two majors. Yeah, no no mean feat in that. And uh, pretty interesting bloke too. Interesting story um, of his life. And we'll talk with David Graham some more about some of the, the bits and pieces from the, the David Graham history later in the show. Uh, we're talking with a mate of yours, uh, Steve Hutchison from the Sunshine Coast. What's going on there? He's the GM of Twin Waters Golf Club, Steve. And there's four clubs involved in a... Um, play and stay type package, isn't there? Yep. And and Twin Waters is part of that. Steve's going to tell us about that. Tell us about how good the Sunshine Coast is as a golfing destination. And um, he's also, um, what else is he going to do? That's about it, isn't it? Well, that, that is about it. That's his area of expertise. So we're just going to let him do that and let he's, him he's top a off again. He's a PJ member as well. But it's one of your favourite places to play golf, isn't I do. It? I love it up there. Yeah, it's gold. I, it, and it's... Uh, you know, you, we were saying before we went on air that you hadn't been there for a long, long time. I've been there a few times recently. I have a f- couple of friends that live there, uh, and it's expanded, of course. It's still um, it's, it's like a big country town, but it's a beautiful place. And it's, it's no, no hustle and bustle, not like the Gold Coast. It's way more quiet. And I love it. And the golf courses are sensational. Yeah, and lots of them too. So we'll talk with Steve Hutchison about golf on the Sunshine Coast as well. Uh, Volvic golf balls, they, they sound like they come from Sweden, but they don't. They come from Korea. Larry, some of our backspin listeners may be Volvic golf ball hitters already. I don't really know much about them. Uh, you know a bit about them, but um, this mm. is a company that's a pretty serious player in the golf ball industry. Yeah, well, it was famous for its colourful golf ball, um, which we thought might have been a bit gimmicky when it first came out on the market, but it's now a serious contender in the golf ball market, Steve. It's been used by some of the best players in the world on, on, on tours around the world, including Bubba Watson, one of the best two-time Masters winners. So it's a it's a serious golf ball and it has a massive range of, of uh, different types of balls for different types of players. We'll find out more about Volvic golf balls later in Backspin today. Now, Larry, have you got a tip for us? Yes, Stephen, I do. And it's got to do with um, putting your golf ball on the tee in a certain way when you're, putt- and, and when you're driving off a tee and when you're putting on a green. Excellent. I'll look forward to that one because it sounds like it could help me. Could it? Uh, Definitely, yes. Excellent. Anything I say can help you, Steve. And you might have a little spit about something from the US Open, perhaps? Yeah, it's it's, it's kind of... I'm I'm a bit conflicted. Okay. Conflict going on with Larry Canning. Uh, We'll find out more when Larry spits it later in the program. Let's talk more about the US Open (laughs) later in the program, (laughs) not now. Sorry, sorry. Let's talk more about the U.S. Open. A uh, lot of lot of talk about the course, Shinnecock Hills. Yeah, went a bit bananas with it, didn't they, Stephen? USGA have been criticised heavily about the way the course was set up, particularly on the Saturday, the third round, when people were putting off greens, weren't they? And the balls weren't stopping anywhere near the hole. They were diving off cliff faces down into bunkers and things. And um, Yeah, the average score, I think, was around 74 or 5. Dustin Johnson took a... A four-shot lead into the third round and shot 77. And interviewed later, he said, I actually played pretty well. 
Um, and that's that means the golf course was just ludicrous. I mean, when you look down the leaders' board, 84, Ricky Fowler, shot 65 the next day. So that's what they can do with a golf course. They can they can make that effect. They have that effect on a one of the best players in the world, and they shouldn't shouldn't have that. It shouldn't have had that effect. It was it was crazy. There was some pretty serious names missed the cut too, weren't there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, mm. including uh, a couple of Aussies too. Jason Day, Adam Scott. What a shame. Jason yeah. Day was was looking the goods this year. Shot, I think, 80 or 79 in the first round, and that was the end of Jason. But, yeah, um, Rory McIlroy, Jordan Spieth, it was a lot of great players missed the cut, Steve. That's right. And that's what, you know, the course with a setup like that can do. We were, we were talking before um, the pre-US Open episode we did about how this golf course looked like it might be the sim- a similar one to last year's Erin Hills, where 16 under par won it, which I found pedestrian and boring. Um, so obviously they've listened to me in the USGA. They listened to the podcast and they've said, "Okay, well Larry and Steve aren't happy with that, so we're going to make it harder." But they've gone too far. Yeah, yeah. So I hope they listen to this podcast and maybe next year there's somewhere in between, Stevie boy. Okay, but uh, let's talk about Brooks Kepka because back-to-back US Open titles—that's no mean feat. Well, it's interesting. I think the great, yeah, that's that is a fantastic feat in itself. But the fact that he shot 16 under last year and decimated a golf course that was there to be absolutely belted. And this year had the op- played the direct opposite type of golf course where a par was a great score and again won. So he's uh, he's clearly not just a one-off. I'll smash my ball around a wide fairway and win a tournament. He can play any type of golf course. Great short game, uh, under pressure, very solid, very confident. Isn't he almost cocky, in which um, and uh, which I'm not a great fan of. But anyway, you, you can be cocky without telling everyone. But. The bottom line is the guy can win on any in any conditions, uh, and and they've put that down to a, a lot. They've put down to the fact that they played. He 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 cut his teeth on the European tour, Steve, where they play in conditions similar to that. So he's a very rounded player, and he's. He, I don't see this being his last major. What about Fleetwood? Is he is he going to win one eventually? He's definitely going to win something big. He's a big time player. When the when the big cash is on, when the big events, the important events are on, Fleetwood comes to the top, and uh, that's mentally he's a very strong character. Um, seven under par that last round, Mister Eight foot on the last for that. Could have gone into a play for the camp. That would have been interesting because Fleetwood had a lot of momentum, even though he was off the course for two hours practicing. Uh, it's a two-hole playoff there, not 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 a sudden death one-hole playoff. So, yeah, unlucky Dustin Johnson, as we said, terrible third round. Patrick Reed, wow, could have could have won, could have won the US Masters and the US Open. Speaking of cocky, mm. I don't know what I can compare that to. I don't know what parallel I can use to compare the, the someone who's very very cocky. Could have, should have, but he didn't. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, yeah, I see. I see Tommy Fleetwood heating up at, at with Justin Justin Rose and Terrell Hatton. The European um, challenge. Yeah. 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 Okay. Now, there was uh, something on the Saturday afternoon uh, that involved Phil Lefty Mickelson. We're not going to talk about that now because it's something that you're going to get a bit irate about at the end of the program, isn't it? Irate and um, and confused? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It wasn't a good look, was it? No, no, definitely. As it happened, it was terrible. He's since apologised and... And realised what he'd done. He's had a couple of days to calm down. So I'm a bit... Um, it just He shouldn't have played the Sunday, that's all. 
Shouldn't apply. Yeah. Okay. More of that coming up later in Backspin. This is Backspin. Thanks to Inside Golf. Uh, don't forget, if you want to listen to back uh, episodes of Backspin, mm-hmm. um, you can go to the Inside Golf website, insidegolf.com.au, and you can download the old podcast. There's some great stuff in there, some great interviews with various people from the world of golf. Um, you can also get a Facebook page. I think it goes on their Facebook page. How's our Facebook page coming along? We're still waiting for your little blurb, Steve. Oh, okay. So I'm the, I'm holding up. I'm the yeah. uh, the the fly in the ointment. All right, I can it's fix set up, that. Ready to go. I can fix that in a hurry. And uh, if you but if you want to, you know, listen to the old episodes, listen to Inside Golf. Mm. Uh, sorry, go to insidegolf.com.au and download the old episodes of Backspin. This is Backspin. Thanks to Inside Golf. More in a moment. This is Backspin, thanks to Inside Golf. Now, David Graham was one of the trailblazers when it came to Australian golfers having an impact on the US PGA Tour, and I think it's fair to say that the impact he did have is sometimes overlooked. Over an illustrious career that began as a teenager in Melbourne, he won tournaments on six continents, an achievement shared with only four other players in the world of golf. Included in those victories were two majors, a nail-biting win in the US PGA in 1979, and then a masterful display of golf to take the US Open title in 1981. He's called America home for many years now, and it's a great pleasure to have him on the line all the way from Montana. David Graham, thanks for your time and welcome to Backspin. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. David, can we go way, way back, go back to uh, 1960 at the age of uh, 14, you decided to follow your calling to become a professional golfer. Do you have any memories of that time? Any strong memories? Oh, absolutely. I uh, well, I remember I uh, didn't didn't uh, graduate high school, which was a gross disappointment to some of the members of my family. But what I do remember mostly was uh, going to Waddle Park Golf Course and uh, working in the golf shop there when I was. Uh, learning to play and picking up uh, range balls and making tea for uh, uh, John Green and uh, winning the little junior golf championship there as a 14-year-old left-hander playing at Waddle Park. So I remember a lot of those days. I remember riding my bike through the cricket field there uh, on my way home and stuff. So uh, I have a lot of memories of that. And then, of course... Not long after that, I started to work at Riversdale Golf Club. and I have very fond memories of uh, working for George Naismith and being a part of Riversdale. So I, now I remember that very clearly. To, to make a decision like that at the age of 14, uh, the game of golf must have got its hooks into you pretty solidly by then. Well, I don't think so. I had absolutely no idea that I would become a professional golfer or, uh, and get to where I got. I mean, I was too young. I was very blessed that uh, a gentleman that lived across the street uh, was a member at Riversdale, and I was also very blessed uh, to have had a friend of mine that worked at Waddle Park, uh, knew George Naismith, and they actually found out that he was looking for a second assistant, and I actually went to... Uh, Riversdale Golf Club to meet with Mr. Naismith, and he uh, took a chance with me, uh, basically adopted me, and uh, got me started. Now, David, you were left-handed at that stage? 
Yeah, I started out left-handed. Now, I really don't have any idea. Mostly the first club that I picked up was either left-handed. I learned to do that. But I also played a little bit of cricket when I was in, in high school. And I think a lot of people have strong right eye dominance, pick up the cricket bat and want to look at the bowler and use their right eye. So therefore, they, they kind of address, uh, you know, left-handed. So... Yeah, but it didn't take long for me to figure out that uh, that I didn't have much of a future as a left-hander when George Naismith uh, uh, was uh, on his way home and I was down on the practice fairway there at Riversdale and he stopped the car and came out. And I'd worked for him for I don't know, 18 months, two years, and he said, let me see you hit a couple of shots. And I said, sure. So I proudly hit two little, two or three balls down there with my two wood and he turned around to me and he said, I didn't know you played left-handed. <laughs> I said, well, Mr. Naismith, I've been here for nearly two years. He said, well, <laughs> I didn't know you were left-handed. He said, let, let me see you hit two or three more. So I hit two or three more and he said, nah, he said, I don't think that's going to work. You're never going to be any good left-handed. He said, I uh, go back to the golf shop, build yourself a set of right-handed clubs. And he said, I don't ever want to see you play left-handed again. Uh, that was the end of that. So he's just put your career back a couple of years by doing by suggesting that. Hasn't he? <laughs> it didn't take me long to catch on, actually. Now I'm going to I'm going to fast forward, David, to 1979. Of course, the the US PGA. But before we get we talk about that, mm-hmm. um, you were a very fine player. Obviously, a, a great player before that. Won a lot of money. Won a lot of tournaments before that event. But mm-hmm. uh, I've read recently where um, you weren't you weren't happy with your game or. If you if you and, and you were you were two shots clear with a hole to play in that US PGA Championship in uh, in nineteen seventy nine, you double bogeyed the last. Yep. And and I've read where you you said if you hadn't have got over the line in that playoff against Crenshaw, you might have even become something different to a to a PGA Tour player. Is that correct? Well, no, I don't think that's accurate. Whoever reported that's not accurate. I what I was quoted as saying that I think winning the PGA Championship changed my life as a golfer and it could have also changed it in a negative way and by saying that when you lose a major championship under those circumstances and we've seen a lot of people do that we especially saw that Frenchman at the British Open make a seven and stuff Uh, I think if you have a bad last hole and you don't win uh, I think that can be very devastating to a lot of people do I think it would have ruined my career? I would like to say no, but I'd be also honest in saying that it's happened to other people and it could have happened to me. But So my point being that I was fortunate that I won and that it, it really gave my whole career another uh, another jump start. Uh, uh, you know, we'd already committed to come and play over here, which uh, the PGA was a 10-year exemption. And uh, I think winning the PGA allowed me to go on and have enough confidence to win a U.S. Open. If I'd have lost the PGA, I shatter at the thought of what could have happened. You you gave yourself that confidence with that win, ending up with that win. You went the hard way around getting it um, um, when yeah. you were on the... <laughs> On that, that 72nd tee, two shots ahead, uh, yeah. bogey enough for victory. And then uh, yeah. on that final hole, it, it, it all uh, fell apart, I suppose, didn't it? I mean, it didn't in the end, but at the time it seemed like it was all falling apart. What about memories of that, of that particular uh, moment in time? Are they still strong? 
Well, I think uh, the only vivid thing I remember is uh, the top of my backswing. I think the, oh, you know what kind of happened, and I've never been there before. So I hit a poor tee shot, and then I intentionally hit my second one a little bit long because I didn't want to bury it in that great big uh, bunker in front of the green. And then I was up where the spectators had all been, and I got a terrible, nasty-looking lie, and I chipped it short. And then I chipped it back on the green, and I had a three-and-a-half, four-foot putt to win, and I never had a putt like that to win a major championship. So I guess it showed that I was human, uh, and I was very lucky in the playoff. I mean, I hit a woeful tee shot, and I hit a, had to lay it up, and Crenshaw had already hit it on the green, and, I made a monstrous putt to even stay in the playoffs. So I've often thought that, uh, you know, uh, somebody else was taking care of me. <laughs> what happened with the caddy that day, David? <laughs> you want to talk about that <laughs> one? <laughs> because he gave you, he gave you a big, he gave you a giant hug when it. you won. Where did you dig up all this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> we didn't make it up, David. <laughs> I know it's been written. It's such old news. Uh, fake, oh, fake, fake media. Scenario, I, 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 no, I kept that a secret for thirty plus years, and I. It wasn't until after he passed away that I told somebody actually what had happened, and and I, I couldn't get a yardage on number eighteen, and and he couldn't because of all the people and stuff. And I asked him what he thought, and I was in the what what I called in those days. Uh, a mode that a lot of people were in. Uh, we, you know, I called it the Jack Nicholas mode. It was do it all yourself, get your own yardages, don't rely on anybody else, read your own greens, and you know, do everything yourself and, and, and have the caddy kind of there to support you but not necessarily give you too much advice. And, and that this is before GPS systems, this is before yardage books, it's before all of the information that they get now on the tour. But, you know, Nicholas was always so perfect in making his own choices. He never blamed anybody else. He was fabulous in that regard. And a lot of us wanted to do that. And we thought that was kind of a way to take on the responsibility of being player, playing it. I asked my caddy on the 18th hole, did he have any idea how far it was? And he politely said, you've come this far by yourself. Good luck getting the rest of the way. <laughs> and <laughs> it wasn't kind of the answer that I was expecting. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's that's kind of the, the cliff note story. You're talking about a great player there in Jack Nicholas. Um, as you know, Australia lost uh, one of our great players in Peter Thompson um, recently. Yes, um, very your, sad. Your experiences with Peter Thompson was he was he part of your? Uh, learning process as you became a, um, one of the world's best golfers? Well, I think he was part of learning process and every player that, that came from Australia. I mean, yeah, firstly, he was the first Australian to start winning major championships uh, out of the country, racking up Australian Opens uh, at will and British Opens at will and stuff, playing against Palmer and Nicholas and Player and winning five British Opens is unbelievable, won three in a row. But my memory of him was that... Uh, uh, George Naismith uh, had tutored uh, Peter Thompson at Riversdale. Is that right? Uh, Peter Thompson did his apprenticeship at Riversdale under George Naismith. And Mr. Naismith had organized for me to go to Victoria Golf Club and play nine holes of golf with, with Peter Thompson. 
which in those days was a very nice thing for him to do for a young aspiring player. And and he showed up and he played with me. Then uh, my first British Open was uh, the Open Championship was at St Andrews, and I played my first practice round at St Andrews with Tom Hayward, Pete Thompson. Uh, yeah, we go back a long time, and he was always great. He's just he was such an iconic person. He was so intelligent, and so kind, and so thoughtful. Yeah, David. Obviously, he he was a special person for you. I can hear the emotion in your voice there. Um, he's yeah. left a, a fantastic, leg, a massive legacy in Australia uh, and, and golf worldwide. Yeah. I, I think, and, and uh, yeah, I think we all agree that um, we're all very sad. And, yeah. and uh, well, and he was he was a prolific writer too. I yes, mean, he was yes. an incredible writer. I think he wrote for did he write for the Age? For yes, I believe so. Yeah, years yeah. and years, yeah. And wrote books and yep. traveled. I mean, I. He pioneered the Asian tour because when I started in the Asian tour in 1969, I mean, Peter Thompson was basically the guru of the Asian mm, tour, getting mm. all those people. I remember he got the tournament started in uh, in India, and I know that he was uh, basically ran uh, or kind of ran the Japanese tour in its infancy, and he was responsible for getting international or overseas players to get invitations to all those tournaments in Japan. I mean, he did a lot of things for a lot of people. He was uh, an amazing man. Over a long time too, David. I mean, when I played in Asia, in the 80s, he was still the guy yeah. that was chairing everything. And you know, I went to a meeting once and he just owned it. He owned it. You know, yeah. he was whatever... Yeah. David, uh, whatever Peter suggested, um, yeah, was was gold, and we all yeah. took it on board. Well, yeah. he was what president of the Australian PGA yes. for thirty eight yes. years yeah. or something. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, can Remarkable. we can we move back to uh, your career once again? And uh, uh, the the first major came in nineteen seventy nine at the PGA, but then you, you followed that up in in nineteen eighty one with victory in the U.S. Open. I, I watched some some footage of this yesterday of you in action during that tournament, and I got to say, right. you looked as cool as a cucumber, were you? Well, I, I looked like it. I was shaking <laughs> in my boots uh, when I played the 18th hole, and uh, I guess I had a little bit of experience based on the PGA, and I got on the 18th hole, and I knew I had the lead, and I knew if I drove it on the fairway, I could most likely make five and win. And um, most likely one of the best shots I've ever hit in my entire career was the tee shot on 18. So it was just an amazing day because I, I don't think any player not even Jack Nicholas went to a tournament and thought, well, you know, I'm going to win this. They may have thought, hey, I've got a, I'm playing pretty good. I've got a chance to win. But nobody at my level was presumptuous enough to say that they're going to win. And I knew I played well, and I had a practice round with Gary Player. He said to me, he said, on Wednesday, he said, man, he said, you're playing good. He said, you've got a good chance this week. And uh, that was a nice thing for him to say. Uh, but Sunday was... Uh, quite unique in, in as much as uh, I played a really good round. I hit all the greens and the fairways in regulation. I only made one bogey. You know, it's a U.S. Open. It's on Father's Day. It's an historic golf course. Uh, our first Australian ever to do it. I mean, it was an amazing chain of, of things that happened that day. Did I, did I arrive at the golf course knowing I was going to do it? No, I would never say that. Ben Hogan um, uh, contacted you. I hope we've got this bit right, David. Uh, ben Hogan contacted you. <laughs> no, that, you're doing good. <laughs> that, that was the best round of golf you're you'd ever good. seen. Is that because he he obviously won on the same golf course and there's a, one of the most famous photos yeah. in, in in golfing history is the him hitting his 
second shot into the 18th green, whether I think it was a one or a two iron. Correct. Um, yeah, so yeah. He, he knew the golf course and he watched the play and he said that's that's uh, apparently um, that's one of the best rounds or the yes, best round he's ever seen. Okay, yeah. that must have been a thrill. Well, I think I think too, uh, given Mr. Hogan's upbringing, which is well known throughout the golfing world, uh, he had a very strong uh, appreciation for players like Bruce Devlin, who had you know came to the United States uh, before. You know, and, and settled and tried to play the tour and, and uh, came from humble beginnings. I think I think Hogan had a an appreciation for people that did that, uh, coming up the way either I did or Bruce did or stuff like that and then be, becoming uh, successful on the tour because I think he related to that. And uh, you know, he's a very nice gentleman. We spoke about Marion there, David. This year, let's fast forward yeah. now to 2018, Shinnecock Hills. You're, obviously, there was yes. um, uh, a lot of controversy on that third day. The USGA, did they get it yeah. wrong? Did they get it right? I know you've had experience in yeah. setting up golf courses. You do you do the Masters every year at Augusta. You're, in, you're yes. part of the setup there, so you'd have some experience in some yes. unplayable pins. What did you think of that third round? Was it justified? Were the players... Um, justified in criticising the USGA. How, how, how do you feel about that? I think the I think the I think the players were very justified. Um, when you cross the line of fairness in setting up a golf course to where you take control out of the best players in the world, I think that's a mistake, and it's a mistake that the USGA have done for many many years. They push the envelope, and I have always said that you know, no group of people are smarter than any other group. The Masters may be the most intelligent, and, and I say that because 30-something years ago, when the members used to do the whole locations, the members pushed the envelope of fairness and put holes too close to slopes and too close to the edges, and players were putting balls off the green and stuff like that. And the chairman said, this is not what the Masters is about. We have to do something about that. We have to get somebody on the committee that knows the difference between fair and unfair. And somehow, I don't know how, and I don't need to know how, but they pick me. So my job is to make sure that we make the course difficult, but not ridiculously difficult. And the Masters' whole locations haven't been the subject of controversy in some 30 years, and I'm dumbfounded at why the USGA, as much as I love the USGA, don't recognize that not everybody in the USGA has all of the answers. And I don't know why they persist in taking this barragement of criticism when it's so easily fixed. They should put somebody like a Nicky Price or a Ray Floyd, who is a member at Shinnecock, and say, do us a favor and come out and look at what we want to do to the whole locations mm-hmm. to make sure that we don't make a mistake. Let's hedge our bet. And the whole locations have been a topic of conversation with the U.S. Open you know, for, I don't know, 40 years. Mm-hmm. Why don't they simply get somebody that may have a little bit more knowledge than whoever's doing it and ask for some help. It's a very simple solution to a very simple situation. But to to have 
what they did to the golf course be the center of of attention on a Saturday and take that away from the leaders and the players and and all of that. It just I don't understand why they do it. And they do it every year, and it's sad. David, can I just uh, just a quick little story that that involves you and I, and, and I'm sure I remember it a lot better than you when I was playing the tour yeah. in the eighties. I was I was I was starting to play half decently and starting to bob up on the odd leaders board and I and I, I was in the second or third last group in the Australian Masters at Huntingdale. Uh, I think you were oh, leading yeah. or you were no, or Amira were leading anyway. I was one of the last couple of groups and I was on the practice fairway, yep. terrified um, and, and looking up and seeing you know the greatest players that that, that, that in the world at that and at that point in that tournament they had some fantastic fields and here am I you know chopping yes. away and I'm I'm drawn with Graham Marsh. Um, I, I hit a couple of shots and then someone walked past me and then said, great swing. And, and I looked up and it was you. And, and it, and it um, ah. yeah, and it was just, you didn't have to say I it. I can barely hear you. I can barely hear you. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Well, it was just uh, at that time when I was so nervous, something I really um, needed to hear. And I stood on the first tee. Yeah. My wife said, um, I can see you're nervous, but just remember that David Graham's just told you you've got a great swing. Um, go ahead and hit it. And I hit the best <laughs> drive I've ever hit in my life down the first. Um, unfortunately, oh, I, I needed you on every other tee, David, because that was a, probably the last good <laughs> shot I hit. But yeah, I, look, thirty—I've been waiting thirty years to thank you for that. You didn't have to do it. You didn't, didn't know who the hell I was, but but thanks. Well, you're very kind to say that, and I never won that tournament on that golf course. That was—I uh, don't know—that was a hard golf course, Huntingdale. It was a hard driving course. But I—I—I I, uh, I know I played in the last group the year Mark Amira won. We went head to head the back nine, but I never did win it. David, thank you very much for your time. When you uh, do, you make it out to Australia at all? Well, I think I'm. Uh, my wife's brother's not in good health, so I, uh, that's not the reason I want to come back. But I may do that. But I'm also uh, on the uh, board of directors of the President's Cup, so I'm hopeful to come back uh, when it's at Royal Melbourne uh, next year when uh, Ernie Els is and a captain and stuff like that so um, hopefully that'll happen and uh, I'll come back that week so yes alright we look forward to it again thank you very much for your time and go well okay thanks guys thanks David You're listening to Backspin. Thanks to Inside Golf. I'm Steve Anderson with me is Larry Canning and in the world of golf ball technology Volvic Larry is a company that wants its product to stand out literally does it not? Yeah, absolutely it does. It's uh, it, Maybe not as many people know about this golf ball as, as, as they should because it is a serious contender. Uh, it's a great golf ball, but its main target, I, I guess, well, it's, 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 it covers many different types of players, but it's the colour thing, isn't it? It is the colour thing, but they also have a, a matte finish ball as well. And to tell us more, uh, on the line we've got Jason Bridge. Jason is the National Sales Manager for Champion Sports, who are distributors of Volvic in Australia. G'day, Jason. Morning, gentlemen. How are you? Hey, Jason. You're well, mate? Very well, thank you. What part of the world are you in today? I'm in lovely Sydney where it stopped raining for the first time the other week. <laughs> Good on you, mate. Get out and play golf with a velvet golf ball, I would, I would uh, suggest. Yeah, I might go lose a few at New South or something. Well, what is, what's the go with them? I mean, they're colourful, um, and one of the, the balls in the range has a matte finish. Is this gimmicky stuff, or is it fair income? Because um, I read a few reviews of the Volvic balls, and they, they go pretty well. Yeah, no, no, they're legitimate golf balls. They're, um, uh, 
you know, the tour proven, I guess, uh, seniors tour. They're very, very prominent on the LPGA tour. We've probably got 10 tour staff on, on that tour. Um, got a few golfers, Stephen Ames, um, uh, Craig Stadler uh, on the on the Champions Tour. Now they're really good balls, but I guess our point of difference is colour. And they're Volvic themselves are, I guess, pioneers of that, that matte finish technology, which um, I think you'll find a lot of the other golf ball companies are now starting to embrace. What exactly is that matte finish? I mean, obviously, it's a different polish on the on the ball or something, or some treatment on the cover. But how does it, how yeah, does well, it work? It just doesn't get painted with the oh well. There's you know, there's a, technically there's a lot of things that go into it, but it doesn't have that layer of, of, of gloss that goes over the top of the golf ball that you you know most people would typically be be used to. Um, what that does it makes the ball sort of highly visible. Um, they just look, and they just look really cool. Is there a spin rate thing there, Jason? Would it affect the spin, the amount of spin? Uh, not in our testing, no. They, um, that's more to do with the, um, you know, the core of the golf ball and stuff. They still have sterling covers. Um, uh, we've just released the first uh, urethane-covered golf ball in matte finish. That's a world first. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, the, the spin rates and all that stuff is more, more to do with the, you know, the core and, yep. and that stuff as opposed to the, you know, the material on the, or the, you know, the, the paint finish. When when uh, any golfer, whether they're a, a club C grader or a, a tour player, hits the ball off the tee, they want it to go as far as possible. Um, is this a ball designed to do that? Is there extra length in it? Or yeah, there's um, well, it's about picking the right golf ball for your game as well. Um, you know, sort of matching up your swing speed to a, um, you know, to the, the golf ball that's going to suit that the most. But we do have a ball called the Vivid XT, which is uh, the official ball of the World Long Drive Championship. Um, it goes a mile, so if you can, you know, if you uh, if you've got a decent swing speed, it's about a ninety compression ball. It's a four piece construction, so for uh, you know your better golfer who likes to give it a hit, uh, it goes extremely, it goes an extremely long way. Well, like you've said though, the, the, the range encompasses pretty well everyone. Um, yeah. From the lady that, well, the, the senior person, sorry ladies, I didn't mean that to, to be discriminatory, but the person who doesn't hit the ball very far at all, uh, needs a lot of spin, needs to launch the ball at the various angles to the World Long Driving Championship. And you've also had, like you said, you've got tour players, um, Bubba Watson, uh, uh, one of the longest hitters in the US tour, used it last year. So it's a serious ball, isn't it? I mean, um, and range of balls. It started in Korea. Tell us just briefly about how Valvik started, if you can, Jason. Yeah, well, it's a Korean company. So Chairman Moon, uh, 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 he owns the company. Um, he owns all steel mines in Korea, so he's not short of a quid. But uh, golf is sort of his passion. But it's a pretty amazing story. He's, um, I mean, probably the last major golf brand to to, to make an impact globally. Uh, golf ball brand, sorry, in the last ten years. I can't think of another brand that's that have been introduced to the market in, in such a big way in the last in the last 10 years. Because obviously, Pretty fixed. obviously yeah. their their investment into research and development is, is as you say, this is a bloke with fairly deep pockets who started the company. Uh, obviously, they've invested really heavily over those 10 years in research and development. Yeah, and uh, he owns his own factories, but they're all in Korea, so he doesn't, you know, they don't get sort of outsourced to you know, Chinese or, or Taiwanese manufacturers on the cheap. They're all... They're all made and uh, in Korea. The quality control is unbelievable. Um, you know, the, the it's just it's really good product. From the you know, there's tall balls. We have S3, S4, which is uh, you know our top ended urethane tall ball. Um, the Vivid XT, which I was talking about, we've just released a new ball called the Vivid Light, which is uh, um, sort of aimed at sort of senior golfers and and maybe you know lady golfers with a 
with a slower club head speed, the ball's actually a gram lighter than a than a standard golf ball. Oh, okay. So uh, that's interesting. Yeah, so. Uh, uh, yeah, being a little lighter, the ball gets uh, with a slow club head speed. The ball gets up in the air quicker and carries further. I, th- I think. Um, I think, like all, maybe everyone else thought that the golf ball had to be a certain weight. Steve, what did, what did you think? That no, I've never really thought about it, Larry, but it makes sense now. I th- yeah, thought as much as size. I thought weight was as because originally it was one point six two inch, uh, one point six two inches. The golf ball and the weight was one point six two ounces. That was the original um, rule that the ball had to be. Now, I don't know what, yeah. what this has got to do with absolutely anything to do with Volvic or you, Jason. I'm sorry, I've just drifted off. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's interesting. A lot of golf ball. Yeah, okay. So th- there's no one else yeah. done that, surely? Uh, not that I know of. But there's a little bit of variance allowed in that. There are regulations on the weight, but you are a, a, a little bit of variance. What about availability? Where can you get them? Uh, all good retailers. Um, you know, your green grass uh, um, yeah, the golf, golf courses, pros. yep, pro shops. Yeah, you, you, you know, your off-course stores, they, they're all pretty much stocking, stocking Volvic product these days. All right, listen, Jason, thank you for your time, mate. Thanks, guys, appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, Jason. This is Backspin with uh, Larry and Steve. Thanks to Inside Golf, and it's time to talk about Queensland's Sunshine Coast. I know it's a place, Larry, you like to go and, and frolic in that bikini you bought for the pro shop. Um, that's a whole other story, though. That one, we won't go there. But it's a beautiful part of the world, the Sunshine Coast. Great climate, great people, great golf as well. Now, a stack of courses to play, including the fantastic Twin Waters Golf Club. And to tell us more about having a hit on the Sunshine Coast is the general manager of uh, the beautiful Twin Waters Golf Course, Steve Hutchison. G'day, Steve. G'day, boys. How are you going? Yeah, how are you, mate? You, you're going. Is it, what's the, what sort of weather is it like up there now t- today, Steve? Oh, mate, it's a pretty ordinary sort of chilly 22 degrees and uh, sun's out. But uh, yeah, no, it looks just a bit of a crook day for us, really, to be honest, at 22. But uh, it'll warm up eventually. Is yeah, that, is whatever. That, is that sunscreen and hat? Is it, it was almost <laughs> almost hot enough to put a sunscreen in? No, that's, uh, it's long pants and, and a jumper, isn't it? 22. Oh, well, we don't know. We don't own long pants, long pants on the Sunshine Coast, of course, but uh, you know, there's not, some of the tourists still wear long pants occasionally if they have to come up and uh, play in our colder weather. But uh, no, guys, it's beautiful at the moment. Uh, uh, obviously, a lot of people coming this way from down south and overseas and New Zealand and those kind of places to, to, to get a bit more warmer. We're not quite as tropical as those, uh, those uh, South Pacific islands, but uh, yeah, we, it's, it's beautiful weather. And put put the climate to one side for a golfer. Uh, there's an incredible number of courses that they can choose from. Yes, there is. Uh, you know, some, some good quality courses as well. And our Sunshine Coast Golf Pass is is uh, something that we've uh, started to promote as a group of uh, destinational golf courses here on the Sunshine Coast. Uh, between the four courses that we've got in the past, that so can course you can play. You know, almost 20 courses on the Sunshine Coast in the Sunshine Coast area, uh, all of varying standards. But uh, yeah, the, the new Sunshine Coast Pass uh, website and, and uh, the four courses: Pelican Waters Golf Club on, in Caloundra, and Noosa Springs at uh, in Noosa, and Prigian Golf at uh, Prigian, and myself, Twin Waters Golf Club in the middle of the Sunny Coast, uh, have all collaborated together to to sell some sell some passes at a discounted rate for some of the visitors to come and visit. Yeah, as you said, it's a it's a beautiful place to play. Those four golf courses are, are first class. Uh, yours in particular, uh, Peter Thompson design. We've just lost Peter, of course, um, recently. Um, so a little a, a sad loss for us. But um, he, he part of his legacy were these fantastic golf courses that were built all around the world, including 
um, your golf course at, uh, at Twin Waters. Uh, yeah, that's right, Larry. I had spoken to Peter um, a couple of times, you know, in the last uh, three or four years, and, and uh, uh, he's very successfully designed our course, of, of course, um, but it was one of his um, pleasures that he really liked on the Sunshine Coast to have been able to design a, a, a Lynx-style course in Australia. Um, he loved coming back. He was certainly here at the opening, and I think if you've... Uh, had a chance over the last few days to listen to some of the stories. And um, Adam Scott, his father, was the uh, GM here in the early days when Peter designed. And uh, a young Adam Scott caddied for Peter, uh, Peter Thompson here uh, in the opening. Um, and they, they developed a friendship from there that uh, obviously has still stood the time and until he's passing just the other day. So, look, we're very proud to have a Peter Thompson course here on the sunny coast. And... Uh, you know, and, and he's done a good job. So uh, I know he liked coming here, and uh, um, it'll be a, a sad loss for golf overall. But uh, we'll we'll carry on the legacy of having a Thompson Woolbridge course. And yeah, no, we love it. Do you have a, a signature hole there that you like to talk about at Twin Waters? Uh, well, Peter Thompson's designs were quite controversial in some places, and, and we we have a uh, a seventeenth hole that's a two hundred and Fifteen metre par three. That's uh, got a bunker right in the front that the, that my members would love to fill in, of course, because they get in <laughs> it all the time. Um, but Peter was good at challenging those kinds of thoughts and designing different kinds of things. But uh, we've got our eighth hole, which he designed mm. similar to the road hole, um, except you don't hit over a hotel; you hit over a lake uh, here at Twin Waters. Um, so yeah, we have a couple of little signature holes that Pete uh, loved uh, to try and um, influence golfers and his his uh, British Isles love of the British Open and influence them as much as he could in his designs and uh, certainly Twin Waters we've got a couple of those. So, uh, I remember uh, I remember Hacho on the left hand side of that eighth hole um, we're, yes, all, we're, we're, we're all aiming because you, you're, you're trying to keep yep. your ball um, at a point where you could hit it off grass and not out of water mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a little clump of palm trees or something down there on the left. That's correct, on the left hand side yes. yes. The, so so they, they, he does want you to go over the water a little bit Larry and if you do go to the left you get stuck behind those trees and and up near the green of course we've got a very treacherous deep bunker which uh, runs off similar to the road hole at 17 that uh, if you're not careful you will roll into there and uh, you may need some excavating equipment to get out I think those trees on the left I think there was a few less last uh, last time I played there because I knocked a few out <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> not, Look, that, not just with my goal swing not unintentionally I think I was yeah, just... yeah. You, you and a few others have been in those trees that thinned them out a bit Larry over the time and, uh, I, you know, I we did my best to do in, that designed in 91 <laughs> and, and obviously there's been a few uh, cosmetic changes along the way but the, the course itself has never really changed since uh, Peter's first designs in 91 other than a few uh, you know grass issues and uh, bunkering issues but yeah look um very proud to be a Thompson Golf Course, and um, we'll, we'll uh, keep it that way. And um, we'll, you know, uh, he did visit here a few times, and I know he really liked it. But uh, yeah, look, there's plenty of other great golf courses to play on the Sunshine Coast, and, and um, you know, this is a very busy time for for all of our courses on the Sunshine Coast because we get a lot of uh, visitors from interstate, and of course, New Zealand and overseas. And of course, after you you game of golf, uh, time for something to eat, something to drink, perhaps plenty of hospitality options there as well. We just love uh, entertaining, and, and the sun's still out, and it's nice and warm to sit outside, and, and um, you know, not as tropical as it would be in in summertime here in the, on the Sunshine Coast. But yeah, there's plenty of other things to do on the coast, uh, whether it be beaches or Malulabar coffee, or um, you know, just uh, heading into Hastings Street to uh, do a bit of. Uh, shopping up there if you 
brave enough to send your wife off uh, while you're playing golf. <laughs> All right, Steve. Thank you for that. That uh, that address for the uh, the Sunshine Coast Golf Pass is uh, www.golfsunshinecoast.com.au. All the That's details correct. are there. Beautiful. All there. You can book online, uh, pay in advance, and um, book your holiday and come up and play some great golf. Sounds good. Good on you, mate. Thank you for that. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, boys. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Larry. This is Backspin. Thanks to Inside Golf. Larry, time for our tip of the week. What do you got for us today? Well, Steve, when when uh, when you're teeing your golf ball up, you have the option of putting it wherever you want on the tee, obviously. You can you can have the brand at certain places, uh, as you do when you putt. And a lot of players have a line on their ball, so they line it up to the hole. Um, but when you're hitting a tee shot, particularly a driver, I think it's important that you, if you're trying... If you have a, a shot that you're having trouble with, perhaps you're slicing on this particular day, that means... Um, the golf club is hitting the outside of the golf ball and cutting across it. If you were to turn the, the, the brand of the ball, as you put it on the tee, back in to about, I would say, four o'clock, maybe even five o'clock, five, so the, the number four or five on o'clock, which, yeah. is what, which is what happens when it's four or five o'clock, yeah, Steve, isn't note, it? Note, still to self, note to self-pack clock in golf bag. For yeah, because I just round. looked at my watch when I was doing that yeah. then. Um, so that the, the 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 brand is slightly on the inside of a, of a square line of your target, and try and hit that, try and hit that inside of the brand thing. Now, if you if you're having a really bad day, you can maybe you you won't have the honour, so you can might slip over to the side of the tee while your partners are hitting, and just put a tee in the ground and swing at the tee and try and make the tee go the direction you want the ball to start on. Now, when it's your turn to tee your ball up, put the brand on that angle and try and hit the inside of that brand. So uh, a little while ago, Steve, you and I were trialling some Cobra golf clubs, and we yep. were talking about alignment that day, weren't we? Yes. Um, and we, we sort of touched on something along those lines. So I think it, it's, it, it's, it's simple, but it's one of those things that if you do, you, it just refocuses your mind and away from the mechanics of your swing where, the, where you don't want the ball to go. And just, it just gives you some, an isolated target. You were looking at some part of the golf ball that day. That's what we were talking about. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah, I do remember it. Now, <coughs> run through it again. So, the, say the brand at the five o'clock position. Yes. On the tee. If, if you're then, slicing. If you're slicing. If you're slicing it. If and you're hooking, just, the opposite. You put, you put it um, up to about uh, one, one or two o'clock. One or two o'clock. So, you hit the, try and hit the outside of the ball. So, if, you, if, you, if you're hooking... You're hitting too far on the inside of the ball, yep. so you try and hit the out, and vice versa. If you're slicing, you're hitting the outside of the ball, try and hit the inside of it. Okay. All right. Is that, is that, is that, that, does that, ma- make that makes a lot of sense to me. It's a very good tip. It's one I've never even heard before. Yeah, it's simple, and that's pretty well me to a, t- to a T, Steve. Well done. Simple. Excellent. Boom, boom. All right. Time for you to get cranky now. Now that you've uh, fixed our hook, fixed our slice with one simple little tip, time for you to get cranky. Phil Mickelson, we referred to this earlier in the in the program in backspin, but um, at the US Open on on the Saturday afternoon, run us through it very quickly. What happened? What did he do? Well, he was he was. Um, I'm not sure what he was putting for, but and I'm not sure what green it was. It was towards the back nine, but he was he had about a, a 12 foot putt. He he pulled it and hit it too hard, and this was when the greens were that crazy. The ball was running off greens, yeah. and this appeared when it missed the hole to the right. In his case, being a left-hander, it was going to roll off the green. So he ran around the back of it and tapped it back towards the hole. It, it was still moving, and then he and then he marked it and then tapped it in and, t- and finished up taking ten two shot penalty. He was given within the, the within the very specific rule they used to give him that two shot penalty because most of us were thinking, well, he's disqualified for, for sure. Um, now, the, the actual incident I thought at the time was he's having a terrible day. 
He's a he's a six time runner up in this event. The, the the event frustrates him. The course was frustrating him. He didn't do it and swear and rant and rave. He just did it. Okay. Well, it was no, almost no, no, the no way, problem. Yeah, the way he did it was almost playful. Yeah, it was. But it's not playful. It's the U.S. Open. I don't think that was the issue for me. I don't think it was the fact that he did that and then put it out and made his ten. I think the issue was his. Well, there were two for me. What what he said after his, straight after his round to the press was terrible. Um, he was inferring that he, he 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 knew the rules and he knew it was only two shots. He yep. might have been saving himself another shot because if that ball rolls off the green, it could go anywhere. Um, well, and I thought, well, that's that's ordinary. I mean, you don't. I don't know. I don't care if it's a rule or not. You just don't do that because in professional golf, you're taking money out of someone else's pocket if you do something like that. Anyway, um, and and he was also suggesting he knew the rules uh, and that's why he did it. And he was um, he was only going to get two shots. And, and I thought, well. Okay, that that's that might be the rules, mate. But that's that's not good enough. And the way you did it, he he, he apologised somewhat. Said if someone's taken offence to what I've done, um, well, you know, I didn't mean that. But he said, you know, if if, if a lot of people are, well, he something on the lines of firm up. He said at at some point. What are you saying? He should have taken himself out of Sunday. He should have definitely not played Sunday. But his, and, his and, and when he when he finished his round, he should have just said, "Look, I was sorry. I was really frustrated. <laughs> you know, and laugh it off." And everyone would have laughed and. Uh, clearly, I've disqualified myself from tomorrow. I hope everyone plays well. Good luck to the, the boys. Yeah. And that would have been fine. But it w- was the way he, he addressed it and, and what he said about what he was doing and, and validated what he did to save a shot. Uh, that was just, that was wrong. Um, now, since then, Steve, a, f- a few days a few days after that, he has come out and, and apologised. And in his words, um, I know this could have come sooner, but it's taken me a few days to calm down. My anger and frustration got the best of me last weekend. I'm embarrassed and disappointed by my actions. It was clearly not my finest moment. I'm sorry. That that's um, it, it's nice. It's good. It's it's three days too late. Exactly. It doesn't ring quite as true as it would have done if he'd said it at the conclusion if, if it, of the round. Exactly. Now those. Yeah, those yeah. I guess there's two or three days he's had to come down. You could see on TV when he was being interviewed by those journos, they were swamping him. I mean, they were all over him like a rash, weren't they? They wanted a quote. They got a nasty quote, sort of, when he said some of the people watching need to firm up along those lines. I can't remember the exact words. So they got what they wanted, but... You know, it's, he's he's been doing that all his life. He should know better than that. In a, in a Have you ever seen interview. anything like that before? No, never. Mm. No. no. I, well, I've seen people spit it and, and smack the ball off the ground. I think I've done it. <laughs> Not in the US Open, but, um, you know, look, there is a point where frustration just gets a better event. The incident wasn't the issue. It was how he dealt with it straight after was the problem I, I had. And the fact that he played the next day, shot 69, Steve. Um, the guy who, <clears throat> the people he beat by a shot, it cost them about... I've got a mate who worked this out. It was about seven or eight grand it cost them that he played that next day and beat them. Right. Yeah. So you've got to look at it that way too. So they can't be happy with it. Larry, as you always say to me, it's not about whether you win or lose. It's how you play the game. I've never said that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, have you seen me play? Yeah, I have. I <laughs> I'm, have. I'm angry. No, no, no. I, yeah. I would never have said that. Time no. for you to go and calm down. It's about winning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Larry shakes his fist, yells Mickelson and walks out of the studio. See you, mate. (laughs) This has been Backspin. Thanks to Inside Golf. And uh, don't forget, you can download all the Backspin episodes from insidegolf.com.au. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, Stephen. You come. Feeling better now? I'm okay. Yep. We'll be back uh, in the very near future. With, um, yeah, can we we get Chairman Moon on? (laughs) Let's try. Let's give it a crack. (laughs) 